I'd like to read several verses. I'm going to preach a little bit different method this morning than I normally preach. This will be more of a kind of a topical sermon. It'll be related around uh, America and uh, kind of some things that we'll make some personal application to. And we are just stepping away this week from the uh, the series that we're in on the home. We'll we'll pick that back up next week. But today I felt it was important. Actually, after the passing of my dear friend uh, Tim Hawkins, who was a preacher, I was given a number of uh, his uh, thumb drives. I was looking through some of his sermon outlines that he had put together, and he actually put together this particular sermon outline. So this is something that my dear friend had put together, and in his honor today, I'm going to preach this message called A Declaration of Dependence. A Declaration of Dependence. I'd like you to look at Psalm 33. Look here at verse number 12. The Bible says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom He hath chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him upon them that hope in His mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in Thee. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this opportunity to be able to share these wonderful things about our country, and help us, Lord, to not only learn, but to uh, apply some of these truths and principles to our lives. Thank you, in Jesus' precious name, amen. This psalm that I've just read to you, at least half of the psalm, should be considered in its depth by any person and by any nation. And I think about this psalm, which talks much about the Lord and how the Lord ought to be praised, but also that the Lord ought to be trusted. Sure, you can trust in horses, if you will, in these days. And many today might say, well, our strength comes in our military might. I want to tell you something. Our strength comes from God. Whatever might you have as an individual, whatever might you have as a nation... It is because God gives that protection. And our trust as individuals, our trust as a nation ought to truly be in God. I think of instead of our slogan often being made about about making America great again, it should be that we should make America trust God again. That's really where we need to be. A nation who trusts God and puts Him first, will find the answers for the problems that seem to plague us and will find the peace that you and I need. Earlier here in our service, Brother Duane made mention of the fact that it was 247 years ago 
that we claimed our independence. We celebrate in two days coming up what we call Independence Day. It all began July 4th, 1776, when 56 brave men signed a document known as the Declaration of Independence. As I preach this morning, we're going to have a number of pictures that will be put up on the screen. It's very possible that I may share some things and some of the pictures don't go up. We had a file that got corrupted this morning and we think we fixed everything. But if this is the only picture that's up there, I hope you'll enjoy it. But we have a number of things that at least try to help capture your attention in this. <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence was a statement that was adopted by the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, which announced that the then 13 American colonies that were, at, were going to be at war with Great Britain, and they regarded themselves as independent states and no longer a part of the British Empire. And instead, on that very day, they formed a new nation, the United States of America. Today I'd like to share with you about America's greatness. America's greatness. You know, America has a greatness because of the beauty that is around. From the fall trees that cover the hills in Maine to the snow-covered mountains of Colorado and Tennessee to the Grand Canyon in Arizona or on to the beautiful ocean coastline of California, America has it all. There's no other place on earth that has such wonderful diversity within the borders that are here. And I believe that's one of the things that makes America great, but it's not the only thing. America is great because of its abundance. I have had the privilege as a preacher to travel to a lot of different countries and preach in many different places. And I have found that as every time that I come back to the United States, that you and I have it all, if you will. We are abundant. We are rich in so many things. But even America, with as abundant as it is in its goods, that's not what makes America great. What makes America great is the freedoms and the liberties that we do enjoy today. Now, I'll be honest with you, in America, there's a lot of crazy things, even with all the liberties that we enjoy. Only in America can a pizza get to your house faster than an ambulance. Only in America are there handicapped parking places in front of a skating rink. Only in America do drugstores make the sick walk all the way to the back of the store to get their prescriptions, while healthy people can buy the cigarettes right up front. Only in America do people order double cheeseburgers, large fries, and a Diet Coke. Only in America do we buy hot dogs and packages of 10 and buns and packages of 8. You know, now I could go on and on about some of the unusual things, but America is great, really, because of the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And yes, there's a lot of crazy things, but I want to tell you something. It's important to emphasize the freedom and the liberties that are ours. The earliest settlers of America were people who came here primarily looking for religious freedom. How amazing it was, well over a hundred years ago, there was a historian as well as an economist by the name of Roger Babson. 
He was visiting the president of Argentina, and he said to him, You are a student of history. Will you please tell me why it is that South America, with her unlimited resources and having been settled earlier than North America, has nevertheless made much slower progress in civilization and material prosperity? Mr. Babson threw the question back upon the president saying, Mr. President, you have obviously been a student of history. You've studied this question yourself, and I would be interested to know what your answer is. The president thought a moment, and then he gave this explanation. He said, the Spaniards came seeking gold in South America, while North America was settled by their pilgrim fathers who came seeking God. And I want to tell you, that's the story of America. In fact, that's the story of those who sailed on the Mayflower in 1620. Yes, they fled from tyranny and oppression in Great Britain and all throughout Europe. But in the Mayflower Compact, which was signed on that little ship, they sat there and wrote out these words, For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. In 1643, as more and more people arrived on these shores, they joined together in the New England states to put together what they called the New England Confederation. Those people that gathered together wrote a a constitution. In fact, it was the first constitution in the New World, and it began with these words, Whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. Our spiritual fathers, forefathers, who came to the shores of America, they came here so they could worship and practice their faith without fear of persecution. But you've got to be reminded of something. There's about 150 years that passed from those people coming on, and a lot went on in our nation. There are some things that went on in the early days that as we now look back at our history that we, as a group of people, might not be so proud of, but sadly, these things did happen. And as time went along in these 150 years, the original settlers died off. Those that came for the sake of faith and freedom. And the descendants now became more concerned, not so much with the spiritual liberties, but they became increasingly uh, enamored by wealth and comfortable living and not being so faithful to God and His Word. And as you look at the times after the settlers had died, the spiritual atmosphere in our country began to deteriorate. In fact, churches were dying. Many of those who had sought for religious freedoms were now not being intolerant of those others. The end result was that in 1730, there was a very small percentage of people in the colonies who would attend church at all. Those people that had begun our nation for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith now began to see all those things deteriorate. But then something amazing happened. That's the beauty of our American history. Beginning in 1734, a handful of preachers began to preach the glorious gospel. 
Jonathan Edwards was one of those preachers. You probably heard the sermon he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards wasn't necessarily so much of a dynamic preacher, but yet he preached accurately and faithfully the Word of God, and he was the president of what became known as Princeton University. George Whitfield was another one of those preachers in this time, the founder of the Methodist Church. I want to tell you something. If George Whitfield knew what was going on in the Methodist Church, he'd roll over in his grave. Gilbert Tennant was another one. He was a fiery preacher. In fact, George Whitfield referred to him in his diary as a son of thunder. That's how fiery that man was in his preaching. John Wesley was another one of these preachers, held revival meetings throughout Georgia, especially Savannah. And because of these men and others, they held great crusades and revivals throughout the 13 colonies. And there were people that were getting saved and getting right with God and getting back to church. And this particular era became known as the Great Awakening. Tens of thousands of people dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ and were baptized. So many people came to hear Whitfield preach as he traveled through the colony that they couldn't come to hear him in churches. They had to listen to him out in the field in the open air. Do you realize something today? That the Great Awakening was God's way of preparing our country for the American Revolution. Our founding fathers, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, those who wrote the Constitution of our United States and the Bill of Rights, those who put their lives on the line, who fought and died that you and I might be free, they grew up and came into leadership while this great awakening was engulfing the land. The generation that experienced the Great Awakening became the leaders of the American Revolution. In fact, George Washington, our first president, recorded in his personal diary these words, Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requirest of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy Son to die for me, and hast given me assurance of my salvation. Isn't that wonderful? These men and women, the leaders of the American Revolution, had grown up in this fervor of the Great Awakening. These men that were used to write the Declaration of Independence, have you ever considered the thoughts and the things that were written down there? Have you ever taken the time to read the Declaration of Independence? I'll bet you that most of the older audience has at least read in part, but many young people have not. And I would challenge you today that if you're a young person under 50, 40 years old, that you take the time and read the Declaration of Independence. Most of you at least are familiar with the prologue that says these words, We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the government. You know what they're saying here? We want a form of government whose job is to protect what the Creator has given to each one of us. 
How amazing it is that after listing the charges against the actions of the king of England, they make two more references to God. They say these words, We therefore, the representative of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. They're saying that God's the judge of this world. And then they end the Declaration of Independence with these words, And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, that's God. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I don't know if these men writing these words and signing their name to this declaration, if they fully understood when they signed their names what it meant to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. There are 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence. And far more they found that they would lose than they stood to gain. By signing this Declaration of Independence, they were committing an act of treason against the British Empire. The penalty for such was death, yet they went ahead and signed their names anyways. These men paid the price for the freedoms that you and I enjoy today, and they were willing to lose everything because they were fighting for principle. You may not realize this, but most of these men that signed the Declaration of Independence were wealthy and influential. Twenty-four of them were lawyers. Nine were landowners or farmers. Eleven of them were merchants. And others of them were physicians, ministers, and politicians. All but two of the signers had families. They were educated men of standing in their communities. They knew security and prosperity, but they felt that there was something more important than security, and it was freedom. And they willingly put their names on the line for the freedom that you and I enjoy today. Who were some of these men? John Hancock, second, the president of the Second Continental Congress, and the first and third governor of Massachusetts, and he signed his name twice as large as anybody else, and here's what he said when he signed it. Now His Majesty can read my name without using his spectacles. Stephen Hopkins, another signer who was a governor of Rhode Island, and considered at the time, don't take offense at this, but he was considered at that time a very old man at 69 years old, His hand shook as he signed that declaration. And he looked up to the other signers and he said, Gentlemen, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a very wealthy planner and trader, saw his ships out in the sea sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and property so he could pay his debts and he died in poverty. Thomas Nelson was another man. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Nelson quietly ordered General George Washington to open fire on his home. The home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart, another signer who was a politician from New Jersey, was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. 
Their thirteen children fled for their lives. His field and the mill were destroyed. And for over a year, he lived in the forest and in caves. And he returned home to only find his wife had died and his children were vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion. And I want to say to you today, that especially for you young people, this is why when we look at the American flag, why we are proud And why we have such honor and why we think about what these men have done. Because this flag represents something. It represents the freedom that we have. And today when people go ahead and burn the flag in ignorant demonstrations, that's not freedom of speech. As far as I'm concerned, that's high treason. This is why many people are angered. You young people may not understand it, but when there has been a furor over people who kneel uh, and, and don't stand for our flag, it's because there's a disrespect. This flag represents the greatness of America, and it is great because of the freedoms. At the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, often called the father of the revolution, declared, We have this day restored the sovereign God to whom all men ought to be obedient. He he reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let His kingdom come. Well, that's America's greatness. You think about the history, and boy, I could take a lot of time to go through our history, but I want you to consider here not only America's greatness, but America's God. It's amazing today how revisionists want to rewrite our history. They want to undermine the godly heritage that we have. They try to tell you, well, our country wasn't really founded upon God. Sadly, some Americans just can't accept the roots that we have. But I'm here to tell you and remind you that the role of the Bible and Christianity are clearly present in our American history. Here's some facts to consider. In 1776, 11 out of 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian to run for political office. Why would that change our day-to-day if that was the case? Our patriotic hymn, My Country Tis of Thee was written by a Baptist clergyman, Samuel Francis Smith. The Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag was written in 1892 by a Baptist minister by the name of Francis Bellamy. The words, in God we trust, that we find on all of our coins and our money are traced to the efforts of a man who was a pastor by the name of W.R. Watkinson of Pennsylvania. Watkinson was a preacher in the 1800s and began making appeals to the United States government leaders shortly after Fort Sumter had fallen. There was a letter that he sent to the director of the U.S. Mint by the name of James Pollock. And Pollock, it's very interesting, was a former congressman and a Pennsylvania governor and was a president of the American Sunday School Union. And he had been so for 35 years. And he had the the love and the desire to see young people that were out in the rural areas brought to Sunday school. This was the man that was the leader of the U.S. Mint, and he gets this letter from this preacher, Watkinson, and here's what it says. No nation 
can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in His defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. Will you cause a device to be prepared without delay with a motto expressing in the finest and tersest words possible this national recognition? And now every one of you pull out a coin or look at a dollar bill or one of the bills and recognize there it is. It is a reminder that truly for His people and a nation that in God we trust. Let me think about this with America's God and ask this question. How does Congress open their sessions? You realize they open their sessions with prayer? Who do they use to pray? Chaplains or preachers, ministers. How are they paid? Believe it or not, it's with tax dollars. Do you know in 1777, the Continental Congress voted to allow the Bible to be used in schools, and they spent $300,000 of tax dollars to purchase Bibles for distribution amongst the people of our nation. Sadly, in 1844, when someone sued to remove those Bibles, the Supreme Court ruled and said this, Why should not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? I'm going to tell you, America was settled by people looking for and promoting religious freedom. America's God can be seen in the Supreme Court. In 1892, the Supreme Court declared this about Christianity. Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based on and must include the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. You know, the state constitutions, all 50 states mention God. According to a Pew Research analysis, God, or the divine, is mentioned 200 times in the 50 state constitutions. Of the 160 times that the name God is referred to in state constitutions, eight of them are in Massachusetts, and New Hampshire and Vermont have six references each. Pretty surprising that three of some liberal states in our country mention God quite a few times, but that's according to the Pew Research here. You know the famous Liberty Bell, which is there in Pennsylvania, has a part of Leviticus 25.10, which states, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Do you know if you were to walk into Los Angeles, might wait a little while when some of the crime dies down, but if you were to walk to the Los Angeles City Hall and look at the doorway, right above there is part of Proverbs 14.34, Righteousness exalteth a nation. The tallest structure in Washington, D.C., now not the tallest building, but the tallest structure is the Washington Monument, and on it is inscribed these words in Latin taken from Scripture, let God be praised. The President of the United States takes his oath of office with his right hand on the Holy Bible and concludes his vow, so help me God. The Supreme Court of the United States begins each of its sessions with the phrase, God save the United States and this honorable court. Do you know that America's government today is patterned after biblical principles? 
I want you to know something. The framers of our government knew what they were doing when they established the three branches of government. Do you know what they are? The executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Now, they didn't find that necessarily from any European nation, but when they got together to form our nation, they found that they could go nowhere better than to the Word of God, Isaiah 33, verse 22. Notice this verse. It's on the screen. For the Lord is our judge. That's the judicial side of our government. He's our lawgiver. That's the legislative. And our king, that's executive. It is he, God, who will save us. Our country has acknowledged God at one time. We may be far away from that. Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, said this, America was born a Christian nation. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, said this about our founding fathers. They were intent upon establishing a Christian commonwealth. Franklin Roosevelt prayed this prayer on national radio on D-Day, June 6, 1944, as our troops were getting to storm the beaches of Normandy. Here's what he prayed. Almighty God, with thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogance. Lead us to the saving of our country. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. And Ronald Reagan, a little more in our time here, prayed, said these words, If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. I share this last point, and I've talked about America's greatness. It is great. America's God. We were founded as a Christian nation, acknowledging God. But I want you to know something today, and this is where we wrestle today in our nation, and that is America's guilt. I think today of what's going on in our nation, I think of the social things that are happening. I think of the immoral things that are taking place in our society. And I think to myself, how could we get so far away from where this nation was in its founding and the principles that were set out? But I want to tell you something. As Joe Wright prayed in 1996 there in the Kansas Senate, he said, we've become a nation where we've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternate lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness, called it welfare. We've killed it, uh, the unborn and we've called it a choice. We've, called, we've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've abused power and called it politics. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. And on and on he prays. But he acknowledges the fact that we must come before God. Why? Because there's a guilt that is upon us. And I want to encourage you today, in closing, to consider this aspect. And I'm going to jump forward here. Those that are running the screens, I want you to take your Bibles... And I want you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. And I'm going to read some verses and comment on these verses here. 1 Timothy chapter number 2. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you this morning, 
considering America's greatness and America's God, but yet the guilt that we have in our nation here, and I couldn't expound on that. I want you today to make a declaration, not of independence, but a declaration of dependence upon God. How does that happen? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications... Prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. America has a lot of guilt upon it. And there's a lot going on in this land. And those of you that are very concerned about our nation often ask this question, what can we do about America? How can we help bring our country back to what it used to be? I want to tell you, there's three simple things, and there are things that you can do today. It's not so much you getting a public office, though there'd be nothing wrong with that if God was in it. There's nothing wrong with you voting. If you're of eligible age, I want to recommend that every one of you vote. We have the opportunity to do that. But here in this passage of Scripture, how amazing it is that we find that there is a group of people, Paul and those around him, who have a form of government over them that they really have no ability to make any changes at all. It's a king. The laws come down. We must submit or answer accordingly. But today we live in this country with these wonderful freedoms and these liberties. And I want to challenge you as an individual today to declare your dependence upon God by doing the following. Number one, you and I must pray unceasingly. Pray unceasingly. He talks here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about praying. Oh, how amazing it is. Charles Spurgeon said these words, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. You know, when I think about prayer, I look at our nation and I look at where they've stripped prayer out. They've stripped prayer out of the public schools. They've stripped prayer out of some of the public forums. And I want to tell you something. What made this nation wonderful is that there were people that prayed and acknowledged God. You say, well, preacher, boy, it's just a sad life that we're in. It's a sad America that we can't pray in these public squares. I want to tell you something. You may not be able to pray publicly in some of these particular places, but are you praying at home? We may get mad and upset about where prayer has been taken out, but you still have the ability to pray from your heart. You still have the ability to kneel at your sofa or lie on your bed and pray before Almighty God. You say, well, what should I be praying for? Begin praying that God would soften the hearts of the leaders of this country. Pray that God would bring the right type of leaders in. Pray that God would bring a revival through this country. Because what will change America is not changing out who's in the White House, not making new senators and congressmen and women, but it is when people get right with God, that's where change comes in. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God is given this prayer by Solomon. He says, if my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face and pray. Pray. My friend, I want to encourage you to pray unceasingly. Number two, I want to encourage you this, is to live 
righteously. Notice here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about not only praying for all these different types of people, but then he says, for you to lead a quiet and peaceable life. How is that? Having a life that is right before God and right before others. You know, it's amazing. We, we get bothered sometimes by some of the, the laws and some of the stupidity of our government and some of the things that go on and we say, well, that, that's just not right. That's, that's, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't make those type of laws. And it seems like our country is constantly going downhill, but yet in the secret of our own life, we're living wicked lives as Christians. And I want to tell you here today that what's going to change America is when your heart changes is when your life is right before God. Because that prayer of Solomon before God is, God, I am confessing the sin of myself and our people and that we will live righteously before you, that we will honor you. Third thing, claiming our dependence upon God, is we must evangelize fervently. Evangelize fervently. You say, preacher, I I think the best way for our country to change is for us to vote in some new people. Let me say in your lifetime or ask you this question, how well have we succeeded on getting some of the great politicians in? And I'm not giving any hope for next year. And I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer or anything. I, I want to vote and I want to vote the right people in. But do you know what the best job is that you and I as Christians can do is to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God may save someone who may be the next president of the United States that has the opportunity to turn things around. God may save someone who has a position of great authority that can help get this nation back to God. Oh, we try to clean up the outside, but I'm telling you, the way to see our nation change is the way to see a life change is when people trust Christ because He changes from the inside out. That's what God does. Your your job, my job, to evangelize fervently. I'm going to close with a really unusual illustration, but I think you'll grab a hold of this. There was a man... Now, I'm not justifying everything about this guy because this man ended up in jail and had all sorts of things because he was a little bit crazy and a little bit of a lunatic as far as his religious beliefs. But I'm going to use this aspect of his life for this reason. There's a man that was known as Rockin' Rollin' Stewart. That looks a little odd. But this guy became known here. He, he was a pretty bad dude early on in his life and had gotten, lived very wickedly. But he heard a sermon on television and he got saved. God changed his life. God impacted him by John 3.16. And he began to go around to all the sporting events and put up signs of John 3.16. Now, how many remember the days at a football game you'd see at the end goal or somewhere... John 3.16. I'm telling you, this guy was at it. It was, he felt his duty to stir up people. In fact, the guy was so crazy, he'd get at golf matches. He'd travel all over the country to get anywhere. He knew he, he would have a little television set with him, knowing where the camera was going to be, so he could put out John 3.16. 
He did everything he could to get those banners out and to share the message. Now again, I, I, I say he was a little bit of a lunatic. He thought the world was going to end and uh, his, things just didn't end up too well for him. But I share about this man because he believed in John 3.16. He believed in the message of the gospel. And he was crazy enough to get out in his own way and to hold up those signs. And hopefully people would read John 3.16 and get saved. I want to ask you a question. What are you doing to get the gospel out? Now, please don't go out and go buy, you know, fuzzy hair, colored, and all that type of stuff. And try to get put in jail by doing things. But what are you doing to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out? You and I have the greatest message in the world. And yet, we won't tell our neighbors. We won't share it with our family and friends. Well, preacher, you don't understand how shy I am. Well, preacher, you don't understand how embarrassed. Well, I don't want that person to be mad at me because if I tell them something, they might get upset. My friend, I'm going to tell you something. If you go ahead and just play Mr. Nice Person, and yet they die and go to hell, how will you feel then? Take the time to share the gospel. You say, preacher, what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel is a simple little nutshell that has these particular truths in it, and that is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and He rose again. And you say, well, why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did He stay in heaven? Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did He die such a cruel death and be buried and then rise again? Boy, that's a little unusual. Why did all that happen? Because every person that's in here, including myself, we all are sinners. Now, we might admit we're a sinner, but we say, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm a little better than the person that's sitting in the jail cell, or I'm a little better, better than this person down the street from me because they've had some misdemeanors and they've had some problems in their life, and I'm better than them, and we always justify ourselves. Or we always think, well, okay, I'm a sinner, but I, I'm going to go to heaven someday because I, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've lived a pretty decent life. I mean, I'm in here, I'm in church today. Doesn't that count with God? I mean, come on now. Something's got to count. I'll put a little money in the offering plate. I'll, I'll, I'll help some of the old ladies down the street and get their groceries bought into the house and put everything in. I'm a good person. Can I tell you, the Bible makes it very clear. It is not by any deed of righteousness which we do that saves us. It is only by the grace and the mercy of God. Today I stand here before you as a person who claims faith in Jesus Christ. Close to 18 years old, I came to a realization in my life that I was lost. I was a sinner. And if I died in my sins, I would die and go to a place called hell. But I was shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I was shared how I could know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And on that particular day, in May, I trusted the Lord Jesus. I asked Him to forgive me of all my sins and become my Savior. And something special happened that day. No, I didn't get a jolt of lightning. 
No, I didn't have all of a sudden this spark of something. But there was something that I knew spiritually took place. That the moment that I prayed and asked the Lord to forgive me of my sins and become my personal Savior, I became a child of God. My life became different. And you know, these 30 years now plus that I've been saved, I have now gone through my life and I have recognized that whatever happens to me, whatever day that God decides to take me away from this life, that I will be in heaven forever. Do you know that you'll be in heaven forever? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? You see, we talk about evangelizing fervently and getting the gospel, but you may be here today and you personally may need to be saved yourself. Has there been a time when you've met Jesus Christ personally? You've accepted Him and you know that you're a child of God? I hope you know that. If you don't, today could be the day that you could place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. We're going to pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of being able to come together and and hear some of these truths and be reminded of this wonderful country that we call America and and hear some of the things and, and talk about this country that was founded on such wonderful biblical Christian principles. And I pray today that Christians would pray fervently, live righteously, evangelize fervently. Oh, God, help us. I pray for those that are here today that they know they're not saved. They know they're not going to heaven, but they'd like to be saved. I pray that today would be their day of salvation. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, please, nobody looking. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, boy, you are, you are pointing right at me. I'm not saved I don't think I'm going to heaven. I sure would like to think I'm going to heaven, but I, 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 don't, I really don't believe that I'm going. Well, today that can change for you. Right now, if you would acknowledge in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that He's the Son of God, that He died on the cross to pay for your sins, and if you would by faith reach out, if you will, and say, yes, Lord, I want you to forgive me of my sins and become my personal Savior, you can be saved. You say, preacher, I'd like to do that then I'd like to lead you today in a sinner's prayer. What I call a sinner's prayer. Please understand that if you repeat these words, there's no magic in the words. It's not the words that save you. It has to be with the heart that you believe this with all your heart. So right now, I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray this sinner's prayer out loud in short phrases. And if you'd like to be saved and know that you're going to heaven, then why don't you pray this prayer to yourself right now. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I cannot save myself. But I believe that Jesus Christ, God's holy son, he lived a perfect life on this earth and he came to die for my sins. And he rose again the third day And right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ to forgive me of all my sins and become my personal Savior. 